SportsLit is co-founded and co-hosted by Neil Acharya and Nate Sager. Engineer and technical producer, Michael Ella. Executive producer, Neil Acharya. Welcome to SportsLit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today on the program, we welcome Rich Cohen, a second-time guest. This time, he'll converse about When the Game Was War, the NBA's greatest season, it was published on September 5th, 2023 by Random House Canada. Rich Cohen has talent, and he's got a whole lot of soul, too. The man can flat out write. So that's why when I started reading When the Game Was War at the behest of Nate Sager, hi, Nate. Hey, Neil. I wasn't surprised, but then I was. So let me explain why I wasn't surprised, but then I was. He makes his case for the 1987-88 NBA season to be the greatest. And man, was it ever well done. Character development, the context of setting and time making people like Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, and Isaiah Thomas so understandable and visceral in relation to a game played on a court and the war that it was. I felt it. But the whole time I wondered, there's no way that Rich Cohen is prone to recency bias. It's so damn prevalent now. I feel more than ever, but maybe that's my recency bias. Rich could have stated his case and left it. So many would have and so many do. But he didn't. He explained it. He explained that it could be the greatest year because it was when he was young. And it was that that was a time when he was young and when he enjoyed the game at its purest. And that really every generation is going to say that the game was at its zenith, at its purest, at its best when they were somewhere between 10 to 25. Hell, let me just use his words. Was the 1987-88 season really the best in NBA history? I was convinced, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'd fallen prey to the common belief that the past is always better than the present, that once what we once had is always better than what we have now. Maybe it was no more of a sign of age. I was born in 1968. I was 19 years old when the events chronicled in this book unfolded. And every sunset is golden when you're 19. I, I really thought that was well done. So to me, that was the beauty of this book. Perspective, self-awareness, understanding the ever-evolving world around you, but at the same time saying, hell, hell yeah, that, that was the greatest season. If someone is going to argue for another, and they should, they better have his writing chops to make it as compelling. One other thing, it struck me that this was a response or, or a rebuttal to The Last Dance, the documentary that came out in 2020 and focused on the final season of Michael Jordan's run with the Chicago Bulls in 1997-98. In that movie, Jordan is the hero. Isaiah is the villain. In this book, Isaiah is exalted as the greatest. But this, remember, is before Jordan ascends. This is 87-88. Jordan had to go through the Pistons. And also, remember, Jump 23 was a production partner on that film. And as the Sporting News put it, there's at least the perception of a conflict of interest in the idea that parts of Jordan's story were suppressed. Horace Grant 
called it a so-called documentary. Remember, Horace Grant was Jordan's teammate. And still, though, The Last Dance was was captivating, captivating, as is Cohen's narrative. And there's a reason why. Just to refresh your memory on Rich's abilities and what he's done, he has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Harper's Magazine. He is also a co-creator of HBO's, the HBO series Vinyl, and this is his Nate 15th book. Indeed. And I'm try- and I'm racking my brain on how to work it. And I took that personally into this intro, but I just don't have it today, Neil. Uh, but one brain candy phrase from Rich Cohen that describes the season he's writing about is, quote, by the end of the 1980s, the NBA had become what America wanted to be, fast, athletic, diverse. But the, it also had sort of the rough and tumble physical element it, there was a, there was a chippiness in it just just like hockey i've never wanted to do the you know comparisons between the two sports because i'm like guys look it's the same they're, they're the same thing a team of five players trying to put something in a goal just different different means diff, different surface uh, d- different equipment uh now i think our big time sports tend to reflect the environment the players came up in now, there is so much skill in the NBA, the WNBA, the NHL. We'll see it soon in the PWHL when the puck is down in that in that league. So much skill, but let's face it, you know, the athletes today, are they're almost kind of like lab-growing in, you know, elite youth leagues and with specialized coaches. Uh, you know, you watch it. I went to an NHL game recently and was like, wow, you never see players out of position for more than, you know, like a quarter of a second because they've all learned this, like, pattern recognition probably – you know, from playing the video games, uh, it was you know, just a different, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the way the way you learned a sport, learned a vernacular sport. Uh, I think of a story Rich told us when he came on season five, episode two, to talk about Pee Wee's Confessions of a Hockey Dad, you know, playing uh, youth hockey in, you know, in Ch- in the Chicago area. And they had an outdoor rink with just had some sort of covering on it. You know, maybe it's something like the early forerunner to those bubbles they put over so, over soccer fields nowadays to play indoors in the winter. And one day, you know, one of those, you know, winds they get in, in Chicago ripped the covering off of its moorings. And, and by the time, you know, some of the dads had tracked the thing down, it had blown all the way to Indiana, as Rich put it. Well... Isaiah Thomas is a Chicago guy. He was from the West Side and became the floor leader of the Detroit Pistons. And he learned by, you know, playing outdoors in beastly conditions. You're not going to put up a lot of corner threes when there's, you know, a 40 kilometer hour wind. And of course, Isaiah, you know, he had to have a, he had a lot of things put in front of him. Uh, it wasn't just the weather that was harsh, you know, family breakup, deindustrialization, you know, material scarcity. He, he just, he's described his early life, uh, as being poor is poor. Uh, Magic Johnson, also another guy from the Midwest. You know, uh, if you watch the Winning Time series on HBO or Crave, and God, we hope somebody picks it up. Uh, he was, you know, he was the working class auto worker's son from from Michigan before he, you know, sort of embraced everything that you know Hollywood had to offer. Larry Bird, which you know from rural Indiana. You know, Michael Jordan was a kid from, you know, medium-sized town like Wilmington, North Carolina, but both Bird and Jordan end up in, you know, Boston and Chicago, places where you, well, places where you look out the window and, and you can probably see like a foot of snow inside, but you're like, ah, I still got to get to the gym and get some shots up. Now, for maybe people who watch the NBA more nowadays, you sort of have to remember what a different game it was. It was, uh, 
you know, kind of the sort of no blood, no foul <laughs> mentality kind of pervaded, mm-hmm. or to tweak a lyric by Big Sugar, it was all hell to get to the basket, you know. Uh, and that was just, you know, I think from the, I think Rich talks about it in the book. Uh, other people have talked about it. I remember getting Magic Johnson's autobiography when I was a teenager in the 90s, and he would describe the games from his boyhood in Michigan, and he said, you know, early on, you know, you you know, buckets would come from the outside, but you know, when it got down to well, winning time, you you know, you you had to take it to the basket. And I did pull up some numbers from 1988 to sort of compare and contrast with the game then and the game now, mostly as it relates to the, you know, the prevalence of the three point sh- three point shot, because uh, this really is a season when you put it in a t- take it out of the time capsule like Rich did. You really see like, you know, the changes you know, the way it was and the changes that were going to come. Because in 1988, the United States and Canada still sent amateur teams to the Olympics to play the mighty, you know, Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, which had like, you know, Vladi Divac and Drazen Petrovic on on it. And then four years later, you know, those nations don't exist anymore. And, you know, it's just the dream team, you know, all these rivals playing together wearing the stars and stripes that are just wiping the floor with everyone. Uh, Rich points out in the book that, there was an, you know, when you look at the spectrum of uh, players in the league that year, uh, there are about one out of every nine players in the 23 team NBA of 87, 88 are now in the Hall of Fame, over 30 guys. But that spans from at one end, you know, Kareem Abdul Jabbar was still playing for the Lakers. And if you need any reminder about, you know, time and fevers and, you know, the, you know, the father time tick, you know, coming for us all, just as we were recording, Neil and I were recording this. Kareem sent out a Substack newsletter detailing how, hey, you might have heard that I fell down at a concert and I broke my hip and now I'm in the hospital getting hip replacement surgery, but I'm I'm doing okay. And I was just like, God, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, Kareem is, you know, Kareem's like in his late 70s now. Hmm. And there's still guys who played in the ABA, like Artis Gilmore. You think the picture of him with the big afro with the Kentucky Colonels. Well, he was still playing then. But then at the other end, Reggie Miller is is a rookie that year, and he would play all the way into the mid-2000s, long enough to be an opponent of Andre Iguodala, who just retired last season. But the NBA is a very American league at this point. Uh, nowadays, I believe at the start of the year, the league put in an announcement saying there's 125 international players from something like 40 different countries and territories. Like, it's not even novelty to see a Canadian in the in the league anymore. Well, in that season, I went through every roster on Basketball Reference. I could only find eight international players. I mean, yeah, okay, Hakeem Olajuwon was a star with the Houston Rockets by that point. Anyone else who was in the league who was had was not like you know raised in the United States and not you know come to played in American high school, they were all just kind of like guys who were just good at being tall. Uh, no one was looking for a guard overseas then. They weren't looking for, you know, a, a three and D wing, wing player. Uh, Nate, uh, just again, what's a three and D? Well, you know, the, everyone has them. The guy, he's just freak. He's like the six foot 10 guy who can just shoot and shoot. Like back then they didn't even think like six foot 11 guys should shoot threes. And now they're like, oh, we need that guy. You know, everyone has to be able to shoot the three to get on the floor and you have to be tall and you got to be long. And that's, you know, that wasn't even really on the radar back then, right? I mean, that that was the other, you know, sort of new frontier that no no one knew was on the horizon. The fact that, oh, you you can make, you know, 28 or 29 foot shots. It's uh, maybe it's not for nothing, but the season, during the season, uh, Rich writes about, you know, Steph Curry was born that year. 
uh, you know, nowadays, I mean, you know, you have this sort of belief in, you know, optimization of the offense, right? Three is worth more than two. Uh, NBA teams now average 35 three-point attempts per game. That's nearly double the rate that they did when Steph Curry came into the league in 2009. And someone's figured out, oh, well, you know, the, the highest yield, because now we think of everything in terms of return on investment, right? Uh, you know, the highest yield is, you know, an open look from three, or it's or it's a layup. Uh, now, in my firsthand experience, uh, you know, I sort of understood the that kind of uh, basketball math early on. I was in the same corner of the universe as Dave Smart, Eastern Ontario, back back in the 1990s, and a small high school like Ernesttown. Well, the the triple was our great equalizer. Uh, but that season, Rich writes about in '88. That was the first time NBA teams averaged five three-point attempts a game, which you might see in like about 90 seconds of action these days. Uh, obviously, the Celtics. You know, you think of Larry Bird. Yeah, they were they were the most uh, three-point happy team, but they would only try about nine in an average game, and they were the most efficient shooting team in the league by a fair margin. But their shooting success rate, you know, just a touch over 54 percent. That's virtually identical to the NBA average in the current season that's underway. So think about that. The average team in the NBA, that's, that's, just think about how athletic the NBA is now and maybe how tough it's become to play defense. The average team runs at what was peak efficiency for a you know, championship caliber team in 1988, but they do it even faster. Neil, that's like a metaphor for how our economy has decided that only productivity matters. But Rich really does explain, you know, I mean, I'm just giving you sort of the, the getting into the weeds with the numbers. Rich has got the narrative and he really explains, you know, what was so stirring about that time. You know, really reconstructs, you know, these worlds. I think it's a nice, you know, obviously, yeah, definitely fills in some of the stuff that maybe wasn't in the last dance. It definitely also fills in some of the stuff that that the winning time series didn't to get to cover because, you know, it ended at 1984 in its second season, but it really explains why, you know, and I'm not, not, we're not knocking basketball now. I still love, love to watch it, but back then things felt a little bit more raw and real, Neil. Well said, Nate. And let's speak with Rich Cohen about that. He's coming up. All right. We're back on sports lit. Neil Acharya here, Nate Sager, and Rich Cohen. Rich, welcome back to Sports Lit. Thank you. Glad to be back. Uh, we had you on for Pee Wees. Uh, now, um, I guess a bit of a, diff- a different type of book, we could say, on this one. Uh, you're no longer going around uh, minor hockey rinks and to Lake Placid and, you know, that type of thing. You're, you're, you're really... By the way, I'm still I'm still doing that. I'm just not writing about it, living it. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, I'd love to I'd love to ask you the question that's the least sexy, which is uh, and wasn't the way I was going to start this, but I mean, let's talk a little bit about like drive and time management. I mean, like you've got I think what four kids. You're doing hockey. Like, how do you how do you do this? When do you find the time to write? Are you just really compartmentalized and diligent when you're going at it? Because you're pretty prolific in what you put out. Well, I think that the key to to getting anything done is just to do a little bit every day. And um, in the morning, you know, I'm kind of like my wife works, my kids are at school, two of my kids are in college. So I just have about 
three hours to write in the morning, two or three hours. After that, I kind of like become foggy. So that's it. It's just like two or three hours a day, but I just make sure I do it every day and it accumulates, you know, and I try not to uh, worry about writing anything good. Right. That's tyranny. I just <laughs> worry about churning it out and then dealing with how the quality later. Right. Hmm. And, and so in, in terms of the, the quality later, then you get a rough draft and then you just kind of, you, you chisel it down to, to what you want. Yeah. You, I always think a writer is kind of like a sculptor in that first you have to build the block of marble, then you carve the face out of it. You know what I mean? Right. Hmm. right. First draft is usually a big mess. It's too long. I misspell everything. Everything's all over the place. And then you kind of have to rewrite the whole thing. And the second time's much more concentrated and sometimes even harder. My, my good friend and author, Damon Fairless, told me once, when I know both myself and Nate write a little bit as well as journalists, and, and he said that it's like, um, he said, uh, Brian Eno, who as a producer of Sting, uh, said that, like, don't fool yourself. Everything pretty much starts off as shit. You yeah. Know, what you're hearing is like, the end like don't kill yourself if you're if you're just doing it on your own and you think i'm not like longfellow yet he's like it all starts out as shit right and you have to sometimes the scare the weird thing is you real i probably my rough drafts for books are more than double what i turn in right hmm. so well, the problem is as i'm writing it i think it's great and then when i go back i realize it's shit and i cut it all and so if you real if you realize that you realize that you're spending whole days doing stuff you're going to throw away which is like sisyphus and if you remember that it'll drive you crazy but what I tell myself is you have to go through the shit to get to the good stuff. Right. Sometimes an entire, you know, three pages you've written is justified by a single sentence somewhere in there that you had a sort of dive to if that makes sense. Like Andy Dufresne mm -hmm. and the Nugget of Gold uh reference to right there's andy dufresne crawling through that crap to get to the other end and then in shawshank and then the little like the gold you get from just all of that gold mining. anyway sorry for rambling uh my first question to you is did you write this book uh when the game was war as a response or a rebuttal to the last dance well i had the idea and i think i pitched the idea and i had a contract before that came out but that came out pretty much after before I started writing and I watched the whole thing during COVID. So it very much sharpened my mind about, you know, what I didn't like about what had happened to Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons and their legacy as a Bulls fan, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I grew up in Chicago land suburbs of Chicago. If you call it Chicago, you get corrected by some people. So suburban Chicago. And um, and basically, you know, I realized what happened is sometime in the course of my life, Michael Jordan had a rival. It was Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah, Michael Jordan hated Isaiah because Isaiah thwarted Michael year after year after year and beat him. And then Michael Jordan turned into God. And when Michael Jordan turned into God, that meant that Isaiah Thomas, by definition, was the devil. And that's how he was remembered. And I had a really good friend from high school, and he was online trashing Isaiah. And I said, yeah, but don't you remember that game, man, where the 1987-88 finals, 
when he got when he basically broke his ankle and he scored like whatever it is over 20 points on one leg it was like the most physically heroic thing i'd ever seen in sports and he said oh it's all fake it's all crocodile tears and i realized <laughs> that that's you know very hard to give credit to the person who stopped you from getting what you want but another interesting thing to me was people don't remember it but dennis rodman was hated by chicago people as much as or more than isaiah because rodman was violent and rodman actually threw scotty pippen into a stanchion and then was a very sore loser when the bulls finally beat him and everyone hated him and then as soon as he came to the bulls and was great, he went from the most hated to the most loved player. So I take it all with a grain of salt. Yeah, you, you hinge the book really on on Isaiah, right? In, in a lot of ways, you say what you want about Michael Jordan, but pound for pound, inch for inch, grading on a curve, Isaiah was the GOAT. Yeah, well, because first of all, my father was a basketball coach, and he always said there's been a lot of mediocre six-foot-ten inch players in the NBA. There's no one been mediocre in the NBA who's under six feet. They don't have to be as good as, they have to be a lot better than. And Isaiah is the only guy in the top 50, if you believe the athletic or Sports Illustrated rank, I forget what it is, um, who's under six feet tall. And I would put him, they have him kind of like in the 30s. I'd put him in the top 10 for what he did with that team. And he didn't have the gaudy statistics, but he didn't want them because he had a completely balanced approach to winning basketball games, which is if anybody scored more than 20, the team wasn't playing their game. That was the Pistons. And uh, I just feel like people forget how great Isaiah was because Isaiah had a hard time disguising what a competitive jerk he could be. And he acted on the court and off the court the same, whereas Michael Jordan was very good at creating these two images. The one the players knew, which was a very nasty, trash-talking guy. We all saw him when he got elected to the Hall of Fame, and you realize the guy holds a grudge against guys he went to high school with. And, uh, And Isaiah who, you know, was a jerk off the court, was a jerk on the court in his way, a jerk. That's part of what made him so great. So I felt like this was kind of a revisionist history and that it wanted to return Isaiah to the pantheon where I think he belongs. Nate. And indeed, Rich, what was unique about, especially Isaiah Thomas being from Chicago, maybe Magic Johnson being from Detroit and Michael playing in Chicago, uh, Larry Bird playing in Boston, you know, lot, all, all places where you wake up and look out the window lots of days and you're like, oh, I don't want to go outside. Oh. What, what was unique just about the drive and the hunger that those greats had in that time? Well, I think it's the greatest, I say it's the greatest season, 87, 88. And you could argue me out of it, but I think it's definitely the greatest era because you had the most future Hall of Famers playing at one time And among them, they scanned the entire history of the NBA because Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was 40 that year. He played with guys like Bob Cousy, who played before there was an NBA. And he played with guys that year like Reggie Miller, who played with guys who are still playing now, pretty much. So Mm. that's like the entire history of the NBA. You had four dynasties, not just great teams, but what recognizably dynasties that people would rank some people would rank as the greatest of all time. That would include, you know, the Lakers with uh, Magic and Kareem and, and uh, James Worthy. 
the Pistons with Isaiah and Rodman and Sally and Vinnie Johnson and um, the Celtics with uh, McHale and Bird and Danny Ainge. And then, you know, the Bulls, who I would argue were the best of all time with Jordan, Pippen, Horace Grant. And ultimately, uh, that year, they were all like in different various states of rise and fall. So it was kind of like the history of empires in Europe during the 30 years war. I always compared <laughs> it to Game of Thrones on the hard court because you don't know who is going to be the hero in the end. But uh, ultimately, uh, they were all still these great, great dynasties. And, and, you, and I spoke to Danny Ainge for this book. Danny Ainge said, if you want to know how great uh, that season was, look at all the teams that would have won the championship in any other year. You know, teams like the Hawks, who pushed the Celtics to seven in the first round, had Dominique Wilkins, who's probably the greatest NBA offensive player who never won a, a championship. And and uh, Utah, who already had John Stockton and Carl Malone playing together. And there were just great teams all over the league. And this just to give you a sense of how competitive was the the Lakers, who's Showtime Lakers, in every round of the playoffs except the first, they went to seven games. And in every round, it seemed like they could lose. And usually it was gutted out at the end by Magic Johnson by doing something he didn't normally do, like playing forward or focusing on rebounds or battling or whatever it was. And you come down to the finals where Isaiah plays Magic, and they're like best friends, man. Like Matt, they, They're kissing at center court before each game. Uh, Isaiah is like uh, the little brother to magic. They call him pocket magic in LA. And finally, uh, Patrick Riley says to uh, magic, you're going to have to choose your team or your friend at some point. And that game, he stepped up at center court and clotheslined Isaiah, who was by the <laughs> way, knocked out two different times unconscious in those playoffs and kept playing. We talk about hockey and how tough it is, but, that year in the NBA was just as tough as any hockey season. Oh, yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. What are players from that era? How do they relate? How much more physical the game? We're not saying taking anything away from the players now, but how just the different mindset with the amount of, uh, you know, physical, physical play that would occur well, under the basket and anywhere really. I mean, I think that they would say, like you said, not to take anything away from the player now, and then they would trash the player now. <laughs> because most of them don't have that much respect for the game now because they see it as an outside game and a soft game. And to those guys, basketball was the fight under the hoop. It was Dennis Rodman, you know, being able to rebound almost 20 rebounds a game and focusing on that and really playing a hard, hard physical game. And they changed the game afterwards. One of the ways is by making some rules because they never wanted another team like the Pistons again, because the Pistons found out a way to basically beat offensive juggernauts into submission. And I, my father grew up in Brooklyn and his variety of basketball was even when he was an old guy, man, and I'd play him one-on-one -on -one in the driveway and the driveway and his, and he'd play me and he'd be wearing his suit pants and his loafers and you could hear the chains jingling in his pockets but if I try to shoot the ball over him for a layup and I made it, he would then slam me into the garage door and the play would end with me in a heap on the end of the driveway. So that was how the Pistons play. That was how the Celtics play. 
And to those guys, that was basketball. And Jordan has said publicly that most of the players playing today, he didn't think they could play back then, you know, because they, they couldn't. I mean, a guy like Steph Curry, as great as he is, could he really go with the the churn of the game, how physically beat up these guys got and how much punishment they took? I don't know. And there's another part where you say, too, for people of your vintage and maybe Neil and my vintage, you know, Generation X, there was a certain kind of like visceral appeal to to what, you know, sort of the, those uh, games that sometimes became, you know, two and a half hour bloodlettings almost. Yeah. And by the way, I always felt and I still feel, you know, we're not supposed to like every sport has been made less physical, less violent. Okay, if you think about it, yeah. In hockey, they got rid of—I mean, boarding should be a penalty and all that—but mm. they got rid of a lot of those hits, and you can't hit in the head and all that stuff, mm. and um, and you can't hold, you know, you can't grab a guy. And in baseball, they got rid of the hard slide into second and home. And in um, football, we all know football. Mm. It's like the quarterbacks have a secret service detail. You're not allowed—you're <laughs> not allowed to touch them, you right. know. So, and in basketball, they got rid of the hard fouls and all the kinds of stuff that were part of the game. And there was something really great about, as a model for how to live your life, about the guy that could overcome the physical play. The big thing about the Bulls that made them so great is the Bulls would get beat up by the Pistons and they had to learn how to play the Pistons. And they had to learn how to beat the Pistons without losing their mind. And, uh, Really, when they finally beat the Pistons, it was like the satisfaction of watching a guy finally overcome the schoolyard bully. It was so deeply satisfying. It was like the movie My Bodyguard. And that's why I think that Jordan got on the floor and cried because it had this. It wasn't just a one season thing. It was like a eight year or whatever it was, like sort of arc of trying to do that. And then as far as Isaiah, man, there was something so great and still about the athlete who gets hurt, gets back up, picks up the dagger, and drives it right into the other guy's heart. And that's what Isaiah would do, man. He would, so Isaiah was a little guy, but there was a game against the Bulls where they, Jordan basically knocked him out accidentally with an elbow. And he went to the locker room. Uh, he was told, you're out of the game. The locker room door was locked. Cause it was in Detroit and people were like stealing stuff from the locker room. So he came back out to the bench and since he was there, they put him back in and the bulls were, you know, very close. And I think Isaiah scored like nine points in three minutes, probably had just been concussed and basically ended the bull season. So there was something very, very satis satisfying. And you really got a sense of a guy's character. A guy like Isaiah was like, he didn't play. He played better after he was hurt. And he didn't play better after he was hurt in spite of being hurt. And he didn't play better because he was angry. He played better because getting hurt somehow focused his mind and made him a better player. And we've all seen guys like that who just get better after they've been hurt. And there's something really inspiring about it. And you don't see it as much anymore. By, by stealing stuff, you mean Adrian Dantley's orthotic shoe, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I want you... Uh, Rich, to um, I've given you a passage. I think you may have it, uh, and it's from pages two fourteen and fifteen of the book. And I think it's very important because uh, it was. I'll 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 let you read it, and then I'll read my question after. 
Was the 1987-88 season really the best in NBA history? I was convinced, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'd fallen prey to the common belief that the past is always better than the present, that what we once had is always better than what we have now. Maybe it was no more than a sign of age. I was born in 1968. I was 19 years old when the events chronicled in this book unfolded. And every sunset is golden when you're 19. I remember being carried out of Jazz Fest in New Orleans by friends and thinking, I love these people, and I love this place, and I love that tree, and I love this hot dog, and I love that girl, and I love this car, and hate only the fact that I will never be this happy again. Maybe it was less 1987-88 season that was great than my life at the time. Yes. Yes. About nervous Nellies. Oh yeah. About 10 years ago, I interviewed Lauren Michaels about the history of Saturday night live. I asked him which SNL cast he thought had been the best. He smiled and said, that's not for you to ask me. It's for me to ask you. And you know what? Whenever I ask it, people always name the cast that was on the air when they were in high school. That's the cast they knew as kids, <clears throat> and it's always been downhill from there. Michaels was talking about belatedness, the odd sense that the good times ended a moment before you turned up. Regardless of when you arrived, it was always a moment too late. He was also talking about nostalgia and its dangers, dangerous because it prevents you from seeing reality. I was at my best in 1987-88. So in my mind, that's when the world was at its best, too. Maybe by my belief in the 1987-88 season is less a rational supposition than a case of mistaken identity. Something was great in 1987-88, but maybe it wasn't the NBA. I called friends and acquaintances, basketball players, sports writers, fanatical fans, people involved in the game today, and kids just coming up and ask their opinion. Which NBA season was the greatest? There is no right answer, of course, such things being subjective. If you are a fan, you probably think the year your team won the championship was the best. If you love the three-point shot, you probably think today's game is superior. If you adhere to the old playground rules, you probably think the game has been corrupted by number crunchers and nervous Nellies. I love it. So, so what, why I wanted you to read that, why we wanted you to read that for me. And, and, you know, we read, we read every book and we, and over time, me and Nate will discuss the book. We don't read it all in one day. And for me, Nate might, for me, it takes me sometimes weeks. Um, but the whole time, all I could think of and in my conversations with Nate was, okay, well, I hope, you know, it's so easy now. And I think there's so many soft takes out there where we don't take into consideration our bias and anything that you just said and the whole time I was thinking you know Rich has got this amazing narrative but like is this because it's just a product of his time because I think that way I know Nate thinks that way and as you wrote everyone kind of thinks that way so I first of all applaud you for for that because I was almost waiting to see what you're going to say and it reminds me of a book Todd Deneau wrote that uh 
Nate and uh, myself have read, and I, I don't think it's called uh, The Greatest Season. It's uh, Nate, a, season a, a, a Season in Time. About the 1992-93 um, NHL season uh, in which the uh, Kings, 100th anniversary of the Cup, in which the Kings and Canadians met in the final. And it was a great season, and Todd did a great job of kind of explaining things beyond uh, what well, you know, why we would just easily say that was the greatest season because it was, a, you know, the one of our generation we remember the most. So I wanted to say, first of all, um, you could have gotten away without doing that, you know, because it's, I think there's a lot of people now putting out either documentaries, maybe books where they'll just leave it at that. This was the greatest year. Um, why did you, why did you have the wherewithal to, to, to kind of, I guess, put that in and explain yourself in that way, knowing that, it is our bias in a lot of ways. Well, because I know that it's subjective and it's the way I see things and not the way things are. And um, it's the way things are to me. And I can make the case. But, you know, the great thing about sports is everybody can make their case. And um, I also know that I used to care so much about these games. And I just don't care about that is my, I don't care about anything that much anymore, you know? And it's just kind of what happens when you get older, I guess. It's like you get thicker skin and that nothing, you're not as sensitive to the world. So shots don't hurt as much. That's the good part. I just remember how much shots hurt when I was a little kid. It was like somebody was trying to cut my arm off and now I don't even feel them. And, but things like this don't cause you to completely lose your mind for months and months and months at a time. So I'm aware of that. And also, I'm aware of the dangers of nostalgia, which is you kind of start exper stop experiencing what's happening now, and you dismiss everything that's happening mm -hmm. now, and it causes you to be kind of living through this kind of scrim or on the other side of the glass. Now, one thing I will say is I believe that the NHL right now is the best it's ever been. Mm. and now that could be also product of the technology and that it's so much better on tv than it used to be you know mm -hmm. um but i just see there's so many players in the league that i think are so exciting to watch and i could watch them even when their games their team's down by five goals i don't care i want to watch them so i know that i'm experiencing some things as a golden age right now and i and i would for the last thing, say, I disagree with Lauren Michaels and that I think there was a best cast. <laughs> now, it was actually the cast that was the cast when I was in college, which was, you know, Phil Hartman, Kevin Nealon, Dana Carvey. And uh, and that and the original cast would be the two best. And I don't think it's hard to say that the cast now isn't as good. And I don't think that that's just nostalgia. I think that's reality. But maybe I'm completely wrong. Yeah. Well said, Nate. Yeah, we we Neil Neil and I would be like, well, it'd be the cast just after that, right? Because that's when we were in high school. I, but, I, we don't have one. But go ahead, Nate. Yeah, but going back to the the book, how did the context in which those games were played—that was your phrase—amplify the greatness of that you know eighty-seven, eighty-eight season in the NBA? Well, what's happened is is like because of free agency, it's much harder to keep these teams together. So basically, it was a multi-season project, and the, the teams ended up reflecting the personality of the cities where they played. Detroit was a perfect team for Detroit. Detroit was this kind of post-industrial, hard-scrabble, 
you know, city, Midwestern city, the auto industry was sort of in trouble, was going to Japan. And they played like that. They played like a gritty, tough, working class team with something to prove. And the Lakers, what team is more, you know, Hollywood than that team, right? And then the Celtics were kind of like Boston was sort of kind of this, had all these racial problems. And here's this team that's basically a, a mostly all white team in the NBA. And they people hated him for that. And then the Bulls, I mean, if you were in Chicago then, Chicago was a sort of young city at the time. I mean, it had this kind of rebirth and it was booming. And here you have this team that's this young team booming. So very much each city had a team appropriate to it, played in a style appropriate to it, and had kind of uh, – a real connection between the players and the fans because the players were out and about. They were there for so many years and it built up these real rivalries, which turns out to be super important when you have a long season where a lot of the teams make the playoffs like you do in the NHL and the uh, NBA, which is the games are devalued. The games don't have meaning because there's so many of them that players don't play they sit out maybe the smartest thing to do is not play your stars and uh that's why the nba added these kind of in-season tournaments to try to give it some tension um and back in the day before free agency and i'm not all too good for the players um these teams stayed together and rivalries built up you know it's like reason why the nhl playoffs are so intense is if you have two really good teams playing for seven games, by game six, they truly hate each other's guts. I mean, so much stuff has happened. And it was like that in the NBA in these seasons uh, all the time. So even if there was nothing at stake when the Bulls played the Pistons, when Michael Jordan played against Bill Lambeer, you knew it was going to be something exciting and something you wanted to watch. And I think that hmm. that kind of has been lost just by the economics of free agency. Yeah, and and another economics factor is probably, you know, to be, sound like I'm in a, you know my back in first year English class, but setting also seemed to ha- be a factor too. When you were talking about the places these te- the arenas these teams played in before everyone ha- you know played in insert corporate name here center. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I was interesting when I went back to look at the arenas, I realized all four of the arenas I wrote about are gone, which is kind of appropriate because it's like the whole era is sealed in amber, and you had these. The Boston Garden and Chicago Stadium, both legendary, legendary Chicago stadiums, were not just sports, but a lot of historical events happened. I mean, FDR was nominated for the presidency, I think, twice in Chicago Stadium. And then I saw Led Zeppelin, another historic event, in Chicago Stadium. So, uh, uh, but Chicago Stadium and Boston Garden were both built for boxing. So the idea of the arena, because boxing was the big sport then, was that they wanted every seat to be a good seat for boxing, which has a small ring compared to a basketball court or a hockey rink. So basically, it was almost a vertical stadium where you were right on top of it, you know, all the way up to the ceiling. When I was a kid, even as an adult, it was scary to go to the upper deck of uh, Chicago Stadium because you were. it was like you were, it's like if you tripped, you'd fall into the court. I mean, you were just right hanging over the court, but it made for this very intense experience of being very close to the action and everybody compressed together. Then when I went to United Center later, corporate thing, 
uh, it was way more comfortable, but everything was kind of raked and gradual and all the energy was dissipated. When you used to go to Chicago Stadium for a Blackhawks game, they had the world's, world's biggest indoor pipe organ and they'd play the national anthem full blast. You felt like by the end there was blood trickling out of your, your ears. So you either yeah. like that or you don't, but I liked it. I'll tell you one thing. I know Nate, Nate will agree with this, or at least knows me for this. And I talked to you about this when we did the clubhouse is um, I am a massive sucker for the old stadiums. Um, and I don't think that's looking back with any type of uh, rose colored spectacles. There's no way you can ever recreate that now. And there's no way you can say what is happening now is better unless you really love, you know, piped in noise. I mean, just the, the theater of people, creating the atmosphere alone in itself was one thing back in that era, but those stadiums, uh, I know many a time uh, the Leafs playing in Chicago stadium. I still can't get that one. <laughs> it might bring tears to my eyes. So I won't, I won't talk about it, but Nate, you know, the last game of the regular season, 89, Troy. Oh, Murray, yes, yes, yes. Todd Gill and knocking the Leafs out, out of a chance to make the playoffs crushed me. And then you hear that fucking organ and you're like, Oh yeah. my God. Anyway. So, um, I will uh, wait on one thing. Like, think about it because it's interesting. It's like, who are those old stadiums built for? They were built for regular fans. Yeah. They were not expensive to get into. The idea was you get everybody the best seat you can get. They were built for regular fans. You couldn't watch, you know, any other way. There was no TV coverage when they built those, there was no radio coverage. So mm -hmm. it was built for the fans. Now, you know, you can watch it on TV, and a lot of fans aren't there. They're watching at home. So who's it built for? It's built for, you know, corporate right who are there to hang out with the game in the background mm -hmm. so it really it really sucks i mean if you go to the game that's why if you go to like fenway park or Wrigley mm -hmm. field is still you know pretty freaking cool mm -hmm. and that's why you know if you want to go see a hockey game sometimes it can be really exciting to go to like a, a college game where they right. still play in those old stadiums like yale plays in the whale which is this old really cool arena and you still get some of that intensity and feeling like you're just sitting there watching hockey not like you're watching a spectacle and the different i remember going with my dad to the united center and i think the united center was a pioneer in having all the stuff going on between the whistles where blimps would fly by t-shirt gun <laughs> jugglers he was just he's like oh my god man there's there's so much stuff going on oh <laughs> uh, so true um um I just wish we now we could kind of have a hybrid of some sort. You know, I, I felt like uh, they might have had that in Nassau Coliseum with the Islanders before they left. I could still feel like the, the crowd was dictating right. what was going on, but, you know, it was in our era. So anyways, without going down that rabbit hole, um, when traveling back for this and, and, and you know, and constructing this, um, what did you discover about what you remembered what versus what actually happened when you went to research it and fact check? Well, basically, when you remember a game, like you're remembering a game from the Blackhawks, Maple Leafs, mm -hmm. you tend to remember just a few moments and you realize, and they stand for the whole game, and you realize that memory, I always think about this, is not really about what you remember, it's about what you forget. And then what remains is the memory. And when you go back and you watch them, you realize that one of the things that made these games great wasn't those individual plays. It was the slow struggle 
over the course of a long game where each team is sort of probing each other for a weakness. And this is another problem with sports now, which is like everything's sort of so geared for online and online gambling and fantasy sports. Hmm. So everyone's focused on these moments and these statistics and these highlights. And to me, the highlights, it's again like inflation, like the more highlights, the less each one is worth. And you see one, if you go back and look up Michael Jordan's, uh, basket to win the NCAA championship when he was a freshman in North Carolina. It was such a huge moment, but it's just a regular old jump shot. Yeah. Because you can't understand it out of the context of the game, who he was, who he was playing with, and who he was playing against, and what it meant. So you realize that these sports is a narrative. The games are a narrative. You have to experience like a novel. And basically you put in a large chunkier night, and then at the end of it, something happens that in isolation, which is how people experience a lot of sports now, is not that big a deal, but in context will make you break down and cry, like you said. So what I tried to do is go back and recover these games and restore them as narratives, and it was kind of my battle against the over-highlighting you know, of sports. Right. The other thing is, by the way, we had it. You had to watch the game when it was on. Yeah. And you would get home and make sure you were with the right people. The idea of being able to watch it whenever you want, like nothing is live anymore, like everything else, kind of undercuts, you know, the communal aspect, the sense that everyone in Chicago is watching this game at the same time, which you kind of felt. And I remember my my father grew up in Brooklyn, and everyone who grew up in New York in the era of great New York baseball will tell you, That if you're like watching the Dodgers play the Yankees in the World Series, you could walk across the borough and you could hear the game on the radio the whole way Hmm. because every apartment had the game on and the windows open. And that gave you a real sense of being part of a nation. I mean, a sports nation, a team as a nation that doesn't really exist anymore. Right. Yeah, true. There, there, There are times where I'll be watching it. Well, as a college football fan living in Canada, I'm like, Am I the only person in Hamilton watching this game? And there's a decent chance I am. Rich, another bit of context, though, I wanted to ask about was how much is the greatness of that, the the time you cover in the book, how how much is it amplified by everything that turned out to be on the horizon that would reshape the NBA, you know, end, end of the Cold War, Magic makes the announcement, the dream team, you know, the arrival of, you know, more international players, like, because that really, because all that stuff isn't hasn't come come yet. When right during during that season you're writing about. Well, I think that obviously I wasn't aware of it when I was when I was living it, and it was very intense when I was living it. But I think that you got a sense that this these seasons, starting with starting with Larry Bird playing Magic Johnson in the NCAA Finals, is changing basketball from what was almost like a minor sport whose games were not covered on live TV, who had very few fans and turning it into in America and in, in, in our, in uh, United States, I don't know how it is in Canada is arguably, you know, with football, the biggest sport in the country. And in some ways just as big as football. So, and I think that this starts then and it gets, you know, you think about basketball and you think about the fact that it was this era 
and the popularity of this era that kind of turned the Europeans onto the game. And it was the fact that the Cold War ended and that the players were able to move freely that suddenly got the guys who'd been turned on by this era and gave them the freedom to come and play in the United States. Mm-hmm. So even though this is before that happened, it kind of set the stage. It, it created the incentive. And I remember once in the 90s, I went to a lot, like 1994. No, a little later than that. More like 19, like 2000. I went to Lithuania and somebody said to go with them to a basketball game. And I was like, how they can't play basketball in Lithuania. You know? <laughs> and I went, I'm like, oh my God, this is like the best basketball I've ever seen in my life. And you realize that these were kind of the, let's say the second cousins of Michael Jordan playing on the other side of the ocean. Yeah. Wow. Nate. Yeah, and I, and I did want to ask, uh, since you mentioned, you know, magic and Larry bird meeting in the 79 final, uh, someone who you thank in your acknowledgements is I think Seth Davis. And he wrote a book about that, that yeah. season and called when March went mad. I just wondered how, how would you describe the way uh, he helped to sort of the, with uh, I guess some narrative guidance for this, for this project. Well, Seth Davis, um, I just got to know him because he, for a little while, he lived in the same town as me, and I met him on a playground because we were both with our little kids. That's it. And I live in a town where there aren't a lot of writers, and I don't know how we got to talking. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy kind of does what I do. And um, we just became friendly, and then I became a huge fan of his books, and his John Wooden book was a big book for me, and um, he's working on a great book right now, so... Uh, and then I gave him the book, this book early, just to read it for kind of, you know, verisimilitude. Like, what do I get wrong? What's, what's an actual mistake, but what do I get wrong? What am I not understanding? Because he's obviously dedicated his life to basketball and especially college basketball in a way that I never have. Cause I, you know, I'm seeing him jumping from hockey to football, to baseball, to basketball. So, um, and then he was just an inspiration, like all great sports writing is an inspiration. Nice. Uh, me, Nate? No, no, you're on. You're, go, go ahead. Yeah, yes. Sorry, I didn't want to step on anyone's toes there. Um, okay, so so uh, before we got on, I kind of mentioned this. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh, Rich, so you can help me out with this. But I remember you making a quote or saying a quote about flaws and kind of how in your when you're studying characters, it's the flaws that make the character. And I, I think it was something like that. Am I, am I right in that? Uh, yeah, probably. Cause I do believe that I'm sure right. I said. Okay. So that really makes it interesting for me to, to move to Michael Jordan. Now we know, I mean, there's flaws in Michael Jordan, Jordan, let's call him flaws, whatever. It's, he's not obviously the perfect human. There's a lot been written about him, but on the court, he's sort of flawless in the sense of he's a machine. So does that make him, <laughs> Maybe someone, somewhat of a villain in your eyes, per se. Not a villain. I mean, I love Michael Jordan. He did something that we never had in Chicago, and you hadn't had in Chicago since the early 1900s, which was a sports dynasty. The last one was the Cubs in 1906, 1907, whatever, 1908. So, um, and he was a beautiful, beautiful player, and that was a big part of his stardom. Not just how effective he was, but how incredibly great he looked and how much grace and style he had, but he's somebody you look at, like you look at a demigod or something like he's so far beyond 
what's humanly possible. You just can admire him. And the funny thing is sort of the number two guy who always gets ripped and got ripped in the last dance was Scottie Pippen for his flaws and his flaws being he was temperamental. He was moody. He acted like a baby. Sometimes he had migraine before the big game and he took himself out. He refused to take the last shot when Tony refused to play when Tony Kukoc got the last shot and all that stuff kind of makes me like him more because I completely understand it and it makes him completely human. And though, and that's, and I kind of, I kind of like worship Jordan, but love Pippen, you know? And um, the fact is everyone made such a big deal about the fact that he took himself out for that last play. Dude, I could see myself doing that. I mean, you worked, I could totally see myself doing that. Right. So hard. Spend your whole life. You wait all this time as the number two guy. Finally, you're the number one guy all season, and it comes to the and you've produced, done nothing but produce, and get the team to this key point. And the coach says, "We're taking the big shot, which you've worked for all year, and we're giving it to somebody else." And he reacted in a fit. He had a fit, and he refused to be part part of it. And if you gave him ten minutes to think about it, he wouldn't have done that. But at that exact moment, that's how he acted. That's how I would act. I'm a baby in the exact same way. I have acted that way. Just ask my brother, ask my wife. I've often stormed that way and said, I'm not being involved in this. And, um, and same with, uh, you know, Isaiah too. So one of the things Isaiah is, was hated for is after they lost to the Celtics in 80, the year before Rodman was a rookie and Bird had just won the MVP, and Bird had won the game and basically knocked the Pistons out with an, kind of a Vulcan mind trick where it seemed like the Pistons had won the game and all Isaiah had to do was inbound the ball, and instead I Bird got him somehow to throw the ball to Bird. <laughs> and they won the game. And after the game, Rodman said, oh, Bird, if he was, uh, wasn't was white or if he was black, he'd be considered just another guy. It's only because of his color. And then they went to Isaiah, who is the captain of the team, and he said, I agree with Rodman. Basically, he would be just another guy. So obviously that's not true about Bird. Right. And to some extent, I think that Isaiah was um, you know, sort of backing up Rodman, who was a rookie, and that was his – job as a uh, captain but I also just think that man he was pissed off he'd been humiliated and now a reporter comes along and asks him to basically compliment the guy who's just humiliated him and there ain't no way he's gonna do that you know so if you'd asked him that same question the next day he would have said something different it wasn't just that he said it and it was stupid I believe he said it and he didn't even believe it he was just pissed off And that's another thing that I understand. You know, I've done that myself too, where if you, somebody's just beat me at something and you ask me, aren't they great? I'd be like, no, they suck. (laughs) If if he didn't have that car, she would never be dating him. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think both myself, I I, I can speak for myself. You know what? I wish, I wish, I think the only difference between those guys uh, and the rest of us that do that is someone like you has the uh, ability to, make that beautiful in prose. I wish someone could write that about me when I do something like that at work, you know, (laughs) like, you know what, Neil was exactly right to storm off there and say he didn't want to be part of this. 
Um, anyway, sorry. I guess that's what makes them, uh, you know, that that's the why they're the greats. Uh, Nate, so I've just been reading the, uh, or listening to, I've already read it, the Keith Richards memoir. Mm-hmm. And oh. at one point he ordered a shepherd's pie and somebody else cut a piece out of it. And he was so pissed. He refused to go on stage until he got a brand new shepherd's pie. And they had to wait. The audience had to wait like an hour and a half until the shepherd's pie arrived. So <laughs> I put Keith Richards in the human pissed off camp along with uh, myself and Isaiah Thomas and Scotty Pippen and you, Neil. Thank you. All right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I guess it's just a reflection of like how th- how everyone now, of course, just expected to be a team player, right? And act with some sort of dignity and grace. Dignity and grace are overrated, man. I mean, and Jordan himself, he just he was very good at. He had a real sense of his public persona and what ultimately. I mean, look at Mahomes the other week slamming his helmet down and stuff, which is. Out of character, I guess, but that's just a human thing of being really into the moment. So, but Jordan, when he got elected to the Hall of Fame, I'm sure you've all seen yeah. it when he just starts saying he made the team in high school and I was better than him and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's Michael Jordan. And that's not a surprise because that's what made him great. The guy felt that everyone was overlooking him, disrespecting him, and not treating him right, you know? Right. Which makes him exactly like Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, there's that strong streak of irrationality, but I kind of want to segue from that into what you described as the logic of the three-point shot in the current game. Like the average NBA team now tries about 43 pointers a game, and and back in '88 they tried about five. Uh, what do you hope a reader who maybe let's say they started watching the NBA in t- 2005? There's someone who's in their late 20s. What do you hope they will appreciate about the way the way they play played the game back then and why they didn't, you know, why they, there was such a premium on, you know, just going hard to the hoop. Well, first of all, a lot of these players I write about are Midwestern players, which I only really realized when I started thinking about it. Um, Magic, Isaiah, Bird, all from the Midwest. And um, there were three, I think there were four players on the all-star team that year who not only all grew up in Chicago, they all grew up playing on the same playground, which is incredible, you know, and that was Isaiah, uh, Doc Rivers, Mo Cheeks, and Mark Aguirre all played on the same playground in the west side of Chicago. And the reason why that's significant is they play in the winter when the wind was blowing. And when the wind is blowing in Chicago, you can't shoot the ball from the outside. If you shoot it from the outside, the wind blows it off course and it doesn't go in. So you have to play an inside game and it becomes a battle over possession, which is rebounding. And that was always a big part of the game. It was the game in the game. It's like uh, the lineman in football. You know, that's where the game is really won and lost is on the offensive and defensive line. That fight between those two groups of guys and people that know football and know how to watch it know that. And, um, and it was the same with basketball under the hoop. But what happened is, is at some point, and I think it has to do with the new kind of computer statistics and algorithms, um, and a similar thing happened uh, in baseball, uh, is that somebody figured out that you'd be better off uh, taking only three-point shots, basically, and making 40% of them than taking all two-point shots and making 60% of them. 
that over the course of the season, you'd win seven more games or whatever the hell they decided. So that moved. And then the uh, Golden State showed you can win a championship that way. And then everybody copied them and it moved the entire game out to the three-point line. Where And the, the other thing about that is when you miss a three-pointer, the, mo- the result is a very different kind of rebound which is often a much longer rebound, which again pulls everybody out. So when I would look at basketball now, it would look very strange to me. I would say it looked like a downtown of a city during COVID. There ain't nobody there. Whereas like the whole game was played under the basket when I was growing up and it was a fight under the basket for control. So I just think it's a different, much more physical game. And we remember that basketball really was a contact sport. And you really would, you know, sort of take a licking. And I just think as skilled as the players are, that side of it, which is the grit, which has always been a huge part of sports in North America, which is the team wins is often the team that can take more and can get back up more times than they've been knocked down. That whole part of basketball has been devalued. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to say the little corner of Southeast Ontario where I grew up, we, we, we were responsible for that because small high school, that's how we, we had to play. Neil knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but I, 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 but I, I did sort of sort of say, I've sort of, lose, lost, sort of lost my, my train, train of thought. Like, say, when did you sort of notice as a fan that, 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 that the game was evolving that way? Or was it just sort of a gradual thing? It around the time that Golden State started winning and Steve Kerr became the coach of Golden State. And I think it was just something like, because you sort of expect Steve Kerr, who is a member of the second Bulls dynasty, the second iteration, you know, in the first iteration, it had been John Paxson had been sort of the guy who took the three-point shot. And the second point, it had been Kerr. And you sort of expected him to bring something like the Bulls triangle offense. And um, Phil Jackson, who was the GM of the Knicks, tried to hire him to do it in New York. And uh, instead, he had this other vision, and it was basically entirely based, it seemed like, on three-point shots. And when I started watching those games, they just started to seem like a different sport. And I remember that Phil Jackson gave an interview for the New York Times, and he said we should, and he was obviously frustrated because he himself was a was like sort of a gritty inside, you know, kind of a grindy player, not hugely talented, but, but physical and could grind. And, um, and he said, well, why don't we should add a four point shot? And, <laughs> and, I, and I have, and I have heard of that. I saw Adnan Verk do a commentary about that once on e- when he was back on ESPN. Uh, but I wanted to ask what your dad being a, an old coach and a guy from Brooklyn, what did, what did he, what is he made of all of that, that, well, I think he really liked the inside game, and that's how he very much played, and he considered those really long shots circus shots. That's the word he would use. It's a circus shot. But I think when he watches basketball, he's really amazed by the talent level and by how mm. – one thing he didn't have in his era was guys who are seven feet tall and can play like they're point guards. And that's something new that he really admires. And one of his heroes as a basketball guy was Red Auerbach. Mm-hmm. And Red Auerbach said, I can teach you how to, you know, do a pick and roll, but I can't teach you how to be tall. Mm-hmm. So he was always looking for big players. Mostly you could play underneath. But now you have these guys who are kind of like, they're just so 
athletically gifted. And I guess it has to do with probably the way players are coached. Same thing in hockey. I mean, the way they skate now. Mm-hmm. Go watch an old video of Messier's skate and then watch right. whatever. They just skate in a completely different way. You know, when my son was being taught to skate mm-hmm. when he was a little kid, I thought, you know, when I was a kid playing hockey, I would just go knock him down just on point of principle because he looks like a freaking figure skater. Expect him to go up and do a triple axel. I just knock him. I just lay him out. So, but that's how they play. And that's how they play basketball too. They're much more, they move much better than they used to. And I think my dad did respect that. I think they call that a, a big man with small man skills. Yeah. Uh, um, just a couple questions to to close out uh, on writing. And I mean, just as we started on it and, and I'd like to finish on it in some ways. I mean, what what separates good writing from bad writing to you or what you're interested to what in term in, in comparison to what you're not interested in it's hard to define but i would say good writing is alive man it's like it just holds you to the page i always feel like when you look at it it's like the page is shimmering it sounds crazy but it's like and usually it's something in my for me it's something that can put into words something that's a half formed thought in your head And it can make you see the thing you've almost seen very clearly and stick it in language. And um, really good writing causes you to see something you've always been looking at in a a different way, in a new way. You know, so that's true about sports, which is you want to take these sports, which we've all watched millions of games and millions of minutes of basketball, hockey, and cause you when you sit down to watch another game you notice things you never noticed before. Even though you're the longest term hockey player fan in the world, it just brings your eye to something different and makes you see what you've always been looking at, but really understand it for the first time. (laughs) That's what I look for. Writing that makes me feel smarter when I'm done reading it. I hear a lot. I've heard from many people. I mean, I work in, I work in, 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 I guess you can call it TV or media, you know, writing, no, the, the writing doesn't matter in the sense of no, no, you know, the people are very casual now, like writing, you know, writing doesn't matter. Writing doesn't matter per se in terms of, um, you know, scripting and things like that. Um, and I mean, the, the, you know, the, there's AI and, and the kids are not necessarily reading in the same way. They, they may be looking at visuals more like, where do you see the future of this thing going? I mean, with that uh, was it David Ortiz uh, at Sports Illustrated, the fake guy. Drew Ortiz, yeah. Ortiz, yeah. Like, where like where do you just see this for some of us that just you know kind of love this stuff? And are we uh, are we on our way out? I hope not, because I think when you read a lot, you have a different kind of mind, and you look at things much more deeply when you when you're a reader. And I think the whole history of the modern world is is people became literate and learned to read. And if we're moving into a post-literate era and it's all images, then I think we're in for a real bad time because it's very easy to con people who aren't readers. They're easy to fool. They have no experience. And, you know, it's just that uh, I think that writing is so important. And Mark Twain had a great line where he said the difference between the right word and the long wrong word is the difference between the lightning, the lightning and the lightning bug. <laughs> and I feel like the, when you have people that don't read, 
it's like I call quote one of the great writers of our time, John Cougar Mellencamp. When you don't stand for anything, you can. When you don't stand for something, you can fall for anything. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that standing for something is reading, reading a great deal of stuff. It just makes you smarter and it makes you process the world in a more intelligent way. Now, all that could make me a creature of something like the Victorian age, but I just don't get that experience from anything but writing. Well, my dad said, yeah. Cause well, I wanted to be, a th- uh, my dad said when uh, God wanted to tell his story, it wasn't a movie he made. It was a book he wrote. What what's next? Uh, what's next, Rich? And I'm writing this column for the Wall Street Journal once a month called Back When about sort of stuff from my childhood that uh oh, nice. and the most recent one, which was out yesterday, you can check it out, it's Wall Street Journal, was about the lost art of the mixtape. Mm. Oh wow. Well I should uh I should, uh, you mean like kids doing it in, in, in high school or actually like DJs in New York? No, no, like you're sitting there in your room in high school making a mixtape for a girl that broke your heart. <laughs> Been there? Um, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I want to, I got to, yeah, I'll check, I'll check that out. Um, um, you know what, unless you have something else to say, uh, Nate, uh, Rich, it's, it's no, a pleasure. Uh, the, the words were shimmering for me. I know they were shimmering for Nate. Um, Sometimes you just need to read something good, right? That's how I feel. Yeah. So when I'm, reading, when I'm in the middle of reading something I'm enjoying, it makes my the rest of my life better. <laughs> well, thank you for being our last uh, guest for this season. Um, we are going to start season eight next year in 2024, and we will always welcome you back. I believe your quote was... Uh, what is it? You're like a salmon swimming upstream or something. That's what podcasts are to you. So I don't know exactly, but uh, I, I might just be uh, again paraphrasing. But regardless, uh, thank you. I'm more like a lake trout. <laughs> um, but yeah, I appreciate it. So thanks for your time this afternoon and, and, and have a great holiday season. And uh, to everyone out there, uh, thank you so much for listening in 2023. We can't wait to uh, have you back and listen in 2024. All right, great. Congrats on your season, and I hope to talk to you soon.